we're going to talk about WandaVision in the, in the cold open because we're going to do an episode that's almost entirely about movies. So we figured we'd get a little bit of TV action in here to sort of balance out the scales a little bit. And honestly, there's not a whole lot to say about WandaVision off the jump because it's very much uh, the pad. The first two episodes that hit Disney Plus over the weekend, uh, we're talking about this uh, the Tuesday after it launched. The first two episodes are really just laying the groundwork. Uh, it feels like it's going to be one of these shows that has seemingly filler that is being used to set up the underlying mystery. And so by episode two, you start to really like catch certain things and, and Easter eggs that kind of tease you about what the show is like in the future. Yeah. So we got to tease uh, with the beekeeper who is supposedly the villain. We got to tease with the radio show. Or someone's trying to contact Wanda through the radio. Yep. And we also got the helicopter, toy helicopter in the bush. And the, I think, twist at the end was that uh, all of a sudden we moved from like this black and white early bewitched kind of style to like a 70s, 80s type family sitcom. Yes. My issue with this show right now is that I'm still not sure where it's going. And I think we'll, we'll probably get that in the later episodes. But I'm wondering if there's a whole purpose to it. Like, black and white looks cool. Elizabeth Olsen playing a housewife and and Paul Bettany playing a a sort of a nine-to-five working man is kind of hilarious. But I really do wonder what the twist is and how it's going to tie into the broader universe. Because I think this is the go-between, right? Between Infinity War and whatever's coming next. It's one of them, yeah. There's going to be, as we saw, like Disney has all sorts of plans for Marvel shows that are going to fill in the the connective tissue between the various phases of the, the movies. Yeah. And yeah, obviously, like the first, these first two episodes have a heavy like, 1950s kind of vibe to them. Uh, if you've seen the trailer, you know that they touch down in other decades as well. There's definitely 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s all throughout that. So they, they're definitely not going to stick with the black and white treatment for very long, I don't think. Um, I was getting like a, a really big lost vibe from this. The You know, mm. the, the kind of intersection between like conspiracy styled mystery running in the background while there's this veneer of like Americana over top of it. We, and we still don't know what Catherine Hahn's doing. Yeah, I, I imagine she'll play some sort of larger role. She'll be connected to the conspiracy oh, in sure. some way. Because um, Catherine for Hahn, sure. is, she's very good at, at uh, sudden shifts and, and things like that. But yeah, there, it, we're only two episodes in, so it's it hard to deliver a real judgment. So uh, before we go too far, we will uh, kick it over to the intro and then we'll be uh, back with the, the bulk of the episode after that. Welcome to episode 89 of the Extra Buttery Podcast, free-flowing conversation between two guys who love movies and TV. This time on the show, you've heard our brief little cold open about WandaVision on Disney+, Plus. so we'll be taking the rest of this episode to talk about our highlights and lowlights of 2020 at the movies. We're going to be talking about the things we like the most, a few of the things that we like the least, and some of the sort of gray areas in the weird year that 2020 was when it came to movie going or movie watching. So should we just jump right into it with uh, our number 10 pick? Would that make sense? 
Yeah, of course. But I should just add that like there are a handful of movies that Rob and I have not had a chance to see for whatever reason. And so these lists are subject to change. And with the Academy Awards pushing the deadline back, I assume we'll be getting more prestige, you know, Oscar beating films over the next couple months. So our, our list is subject to change. And I think we always do like a awards preview and review show. And I think we'll have like our final top 10 list as well as a bunch of picks that we've made. So, so far, uh, this is our list for now, subject to change, but I'm I'm ready to go. Okay, well, so uh, on that note, uh, coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow, and joining me from Vancouver is my co-host, Jason Chan. And kicking us off at the number 10 spot, uh, I'll go first. My number 10 so far this year is the documentary, Dick Johnson is Dead. Oh, we're putting documentaries in this? Okay, that's a little different. I didn't expect that. <laughs> well, I didn't know it would throw you off so much, but... <laughs> well, because I, I feel films and documentaries are two separate things. I've, I've watched a lot of great documentaries this Okay, year. well, I mean, you you have some time because I'll, I'll talk about this movie and then, you know, you can hastily, like, reevaluate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> Just totally ripping the carpet out from under you here. Dick Johnson is Dead. This is a movie. It came out uh, 2020. It just hit Netflix in Canada a little while ago. Uh, directed by Kirsten Johnson, who is a longtime documentarian, uh, and she, you know, she's worked on I, dozens of movies over the years. Usually as the, the cinematographer, uh, sometimes as the director. Um, but this is a really personal film for her, where she documents the past couple of years of living with her elderly father, Dick Johnson, who was a, a psychiatrist working in Seattle was diagnosed with a form of dementia and knowing, you know, the the prognosis of, of dementia, she decided that uh, she was going to take her talents behind the camera and kind of capture the experience of living with an elderly parent and the kind of decline that comes along with that. And she's a little bit uniquely prepared for it in the sense that her mother suffered from dementia as well. And she expresses in this documentary how she didn't get much of a chance when it was happening to her mother to record any of it on camera. Maybe she felt it wasn't appropriate. So she she doesn't have a whole lot of that experience documented. And so she really kind of throws herself into the, the exercise with her father. And she goes about it in a, in a really fun way by staging a series of death scenes, violent death scenes, uh, in an effort to kind of help her and her father um, come to terms with his coming demise. And for some people, like these death scenes might seem like tasteless or that uh, she's exploiting her father's situation for the sake of, you know, her own financial enrichment or um, that kind of thing. But the overall vibe of the documentary is, is very lighthearted. And she concocts these really touching sequences, especially one that is interspersed throughout the documentary where she imagines what it will be like when her father Dick goes to heaven, which are totally fantastical and filled with like slow-mo dancers and uh, like where they're wearing blown up black and white images of Dick Johnson and his wife when they were younger and like slow motion bubbles and things and, and music. It's uh, it's really kind of ethereal and fun. And I would say this has a high likelihood of being nominated in the documentary category this year at the Oscars. Um, so if you see it come up on Netflix, recommendation for me. Um, 
What is your number 10 pick? Okay, well, let me just first say say that because you've given me a chance to look up some documentaries. Oh. <laughs> I'd watch quite a few documentaries. I always want to push this. ESPN has something called 30 for 30, and this was a project that was launched uh, less than 10 years ago, and it's basically documentary series, uh, summer feature length that explore the world of sport and society. So I think it was last year, two years ago, OJ Made America. That's a 30 for 30 production. Uh, that one, I think best Oscar for best documentary. And it was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. So the, the two that I watched this year that I think were incredible were obviously The Last Dance with Michael Jordan and Athlete A, who is just not a 30 for 30, but it's talking about the U.S. Uh, gymnastics scandal with Dr. Larry Nasser. And the third one that I haven't been able to watch yet, but I've heard is excellent, is a Bruce Lee documentary called Be Water. It's on ESPN if you have it. But uh, anyway, let's go back to movies because I feel like documentaries are on a whole other topic. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I had a lot of uh, debate within myself at number 10. And at number 10, this is going to be surprising and even surprise me. I have Tesla. Oh, okay. Have you seen this? Yes, I just watched it uh, about a week ago, actually. Okay. So this is basically a uh, Ethan Hawke vehicle mm-hmm. uh, directed by Michael Almereda. Uh, and this is sort of like an idiosyncratic look at the life of Tesla. And so um, what I love about film in general is how directors can approach things non-linearly or from a different angle. And this definitely does that. I think as a story, there's a little bit to be desired. I don't think this is Ethan Hawke's best performance either, but I love the idea and I love some of the execution where you have Eve Hewson. Uh, who's plays uh, Tesla's partner at the time. Um, she'll once in a while sort of do this big short thing where like she kind of speaks, she breaks the fourth wall, speaks directly to camera while typing on her Mac laptop. Yes. And, and, and she'll sort of like explain uh, how we see Tesla and how what he was like back in the day. And I love that. Uh, juxtaposition or or a certain like uh, flashback scenes will also have kind of fanciful recreations uh, in fanciful like details thrown in that are not historically accurate. And yeah. then, they'll, then they'll make a point of saying in the narration that this probably isn't how this happened. So an example would be like uh, an argument between Tesla and Thomas Edison uh, played by Kyle McLaughlin. Uh, Kyle McLaughlin. Yes, where they they're arguing over AC versus DC current and they're both uh, eating ice cream cones while they do that. And it escalates to the point where they're just like rubbing ice cream in each other's faces. Yeah, the ice cream cone is is definitely a, a highlight for me. So that yeah, that was a, a weird sort of uh, selection that made it into the top ten for me. I think it'll get bumped down, but um, I just love uh, how different it is. Number nine. Do you want to go? Do you want to start? Yeah, uh, for number nine, I will say Soul. And I don't know where this one is going to rank on yours. I have a feeling it might get in there somewhere. It is. Okay. Okay. So it's at number nine for me. And this is the the latest uh, film from Pixar, Disney Pixar, mm-hmm. uh, which came out uh, right around Christmas time. Uh, same day as... Wonder Woman 1984, I think, but... I wonder which movie is better. A Soul is better, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Did you really have to say it? (laughs) Of course, I think we we already talked about this on the show, didn't we? Um, So if you want a little bit more detail, you can scroll back to that episode. But basically, Soul, the main character voiced by Jamie Foxx, was for me one of Pixar's more involving 
uh, efforts of the, the past couple of years that, you know, they'd been making a number of sequels and this was a uh, an original story by them. And I just love the the setting in New York City, uh, the art direction of the the moments where the main character is thrust mm-hmm. into the great beyond and uh, his soul is wandering around uh, out, out of his body. It had just enough of those classic Pixar family oriented jokes where there's something for kids and something for adults. Mm-hmm. Just the incredible work that Pixar puts into visualizing intangible concepts, which I don't think hardly any other animation studio is doing these days. Um, so yeah, uh, that's definitely on uh, in my top 10. Not super high because it kind of gets beat out by a few other things this year. But what about you? What's your number nine? So I should say Soul was number four for me. Okay, so we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get there. So my number nine film, eight and nine are sort of in the same tier. These are, I feel, overlooked indie films that should get a lot more attention, but they don't for whatever reason. And it's First Cow. So this movie was released in 2019, but I believe it qualifies for 2020 awards. Yes. So that's my cheat. Uh, This film directed by Kelly Reichardt stars John McGarrow and Orion Lee about two people uh, living in the Oregon Territory who sort of uh, come up with this. I guess it wouldn't be called a Ponzi scheme, but it's definitely a scheme of some kind. And uh, what they do is they go into their neighbor's backyard, secretly milk their cow, make these really delicious biscuits and sell them to the public for money to fund their dreams of owning a hotel or moving away or whatever it was. I just love how focused this film is. And although I don't think it does anything innovative or surprising, I think you can really guess the beats of the movie. But I think just every part of it is executed so well. So props to them for that. Yes, and the the tension just ratchets up and up and up, and you would not expect it from that's a right. necessarily from a uh, a movie that starts with more comedic overtones like this one does. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Ev- but eventually, like as the as people start to figure out the scheme of the two main characters, and uh, you know, a, a, a posse is basically mm-hmm. assembled to go after them, even though we wouldn't expect something like that for the crime of stealing milk, your heart is literally up in your throat wondering what's going to happen to these guys. I haven't seen a whole lot of Kelly Reichardt's films, but uh, this is my my favorite of the ones I've seen so far. Did this rank in your top 10? It did. Yeah, it's it's coming in at uh, number four, actually, for me. Oh, okay. So Soul and First Cow are flip-flop for Between the Two of Us. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how that worked out. Oh, that's actually interesting. (laughs) That's like a perfect flip-flop. Okay. uh, Number eight. This is going to be different, I think. Okay. So my number eight is Mank. From David Fincher. Mm, okay. Um, and this one uh, came out um, in November, I think it was. Um, I figured this would be in your top 10 somewhere. Yeah. It had to be. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, uh, yeah, like uh, like any of the other movies on this list, you can uh, scroll back to uh, the relevant episode if you're if you're looking for more detail. But uh, in that in the episode where we discussed Mank, we kind of got into the idea that I, I'm sort of in the the target demographic for Mank in the sense that a hundred percent you are. <laughs> I'm a 30 something guy. I work on a movie podcast. I have a, ch- a criterion channel subscription. I listen to, you must remember this. You love old Hollywood too. Uh, I love old Hollywood. Uh, and it's so interesting to see David Fincher work in such a different mode compared to his usual, uh, thriller True. murder mystery type, uh, type movies. And admittedly as a, as a result of that, this is a very insidery movie, and it's not going to connect with uh, the usual people who would flock to see a David Fincher movie. 
It's just, uh, you know, being about the the writing of Citizen Kane and uh, all of these people who were crawling around Hollywood at the time. And not only the stuff that was happening on the studio backlots, but also the uh, the political situation of the time, the gubernatorial race. So there's you know, there's a lot of different, very niche topics kind of intersecting there. But if you're like me, you you'll probably appreciated at least what Fincher was going through. You may not have had the most entertaining time, but you have to kind of uh, pat Fincher on the back for wanting to tackle it in the way that he did. I think for a lot of the film, it taps itself on the back. So yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> very self-indulgent. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a little bit. So I'm kind of in the same boat. Uh, number eight is a bit of a niche film because it's an international film. And I was lucky enough to catch this during VIF. This is the Japanese film, A Life Turned Upside Down, My Dad's an Alcoholic, uh, directed by Kenji Karagiri. Uh, uh, I've spoken at length about this film, too, uh, when Viff was around, and I, I did write a review on our website, so check it out if you want. But it's about this uh, Japanese family, mother, dad, and two daughters, and dad is an alcoholic, and he kind of spirals out of control and everything around him spirals out of control. It's not something we haven't seen. Uh, what makes it special, though, is one, it's set in Japan, and I think it captures a lot of the Japanese culture and the nuances very well. The second is because this is adapted from a webcomic, you have all these like little thought bubbles and, and graphics that kind of pop in. Um, when the main character, the the oldest daughter, has like an internal dialogue. I love that part. I thought it added like an extra element to something that could be really dark and depressing. And I, I think the overall message was good. Japanese films tend to be a little depressing sometimes, but I didn't feel it this way. I thought the acting was good. Uh, I thought the production value was pretty good. And I love the overall message. So this one ranks at number eight for me. So then that brings us to number seven. Which for me, I'm going to say Kajillionaire uh, by Miranda July. Right. This is going to push into the top 10 for me at some point, I think, after I see it. Granted, I haven't seen a whole lot of Miranda July's movies. And uh, I think we may have talked about this when uh, when we originally talked about this movie. But Kajillionaire is the story of a family of con artists, grifters, living in a version of modern day Los Angeles. Uh, you've got Richard Jenkins and Evan Rachel Wood as the father and daughter, and they basically go about their their lives trying to pull off random little scams to eke out a very meager existence. And it's just such a carefully observed movie with so many weird little personality ticks and bizarre little things baked into the script that you can't help but kind of be charmed by it. There's this kind of color palette influenced by the color pink, which keeps recurring throughout the movie, and this motif of soap bubbling through a wall because the family, one of their the things they do is they, they have to scrape a bubbling soap off the wall of a neighboring unit from a laundry, industrial laundromat. I believe it is mm -hmm. uh, to in order to like keep the wall from getting soaked through and falling over. <laughs> um, so so weird little things like that and uh, combined with a very esoteric score. And it's just a, uh, a bizarre little indie movie that you kind of have to see to understand. But uh, yeah, I had to mention it in my top 10 because uh, uh, I'm, I'm very curious to see why, where Miranda July goes next now that she's been able to attract some bigger names like Richard Jenkins and Evan Rachel Wood to her projects. So number seven for me, 
Uh, I should say five, six, seven. I grouped in a tier. It's hard for me to pick one of the three just that really stands out, but they're all kind of like, after I review the picks, it should be pretty clear um, how they're all connected. So number seven for me is the trial of the Chicago seven. Now I know this is like a very Aaron Sorkin-y, talky courtroom drama, but I really liked the ex- execution. I thought the acting was good because I really wanted to punch Eddie Redmayne. So that tells you he's doing a good job. <laughs> okay. um, I thought Sasha Baron Cohen was really good too. And I think these like legal dramas have kind of gone out of style recently. And this just kind of takes me back to, you know, the 90s when when these things were really popular. Um, Just overall, I think a really solid film. Given how crazy and messed up this year has been, I think films that really execute every single part well, not necessarily great, have made it to my top 10. So this is one of those films. I don't expect it to be an awards darling. It could because it's Aaron Sorkin and it's kind of their thing. It's right up their alley. But I think in any other year, Trial of the Chicago 7 is borderline top 10. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because I I didn't like it as much as you did. I Maybe I don't have as much of an affinity for Aaron Sorkin. You don't like the whippy snappy dialogue? Yeah, it just, it, you know, I'm kind of uh, meh on that stuff. And <laughs> I, I also... I took issue with some of the kind of the more emotionally manipulative stuff that kind of comes along with uh, those kind of sweeping courtroom dramas where the structure and the the ultimate thing is just. I don't know if you'd like my top two picks then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or my number two pick, I should say. So that'll be interesting. But number six? Uh, number six for me is one I actually just saw last night because it uh, it took a, what felt like an eternity to come to VOD in Canada, uh, and that is Promising Young Woman. Ah, okay. And uh, this is a movie directed by Emerald Fennell, who most people will probably know uh, more as an actress, and uh, she plays uh, Camilla on Netflix's The Crown. And here she is with a uh, feature debut starring Carrie Mulligan as a medical school dropout who suffered a a pretty traumatic event when she was in medical school. Uh, And as a result of this, she's completely derailed her life. She's working in a coffee shop instead of pursuing any kind of, you know, dreams. And on weekends, she's waging this campaign against rape culture and going after predatory men who sort of disguise themselves as the nice guys And she dresses herself up in various outfits, pretends to be drunk, and encourages these men to take her home and then carries out this campaign, which is nonviolent, but still sort of morally murky, morally gray uh, in an effort to sort of clean up the city, clean up the streets and uh, teach these men the error of their ways. And it culminates with an ending that is maybe not what... A lot of people would expect from a genre revenge thing with rape as the main uh, theme. So there's a there's an interesting discussion to be had about this movie, about uh, what we expected from it, what what you would expect from it, given the the theme and whether or not the ending is satisfying, whether it should be satisfying. Carrie Mulligan, of course, in the central performance. Fantastic. Some of the best work she's ever done. I also really like the supporting performance from Bo Burnham, who's normally more of a YouTube slash stand-up comedy performer in a semi-dramatic role. The cinematography, uh, 
also highlight here. And it was executive produced by Margot Robbie from her newly created production company. So uh, curious to see what comes out of future Margot Robbie productions. Mm, Okay, so this is another movie that will probably push into my top 10 after I get a chance to see it. Uh, But ranking at number six for me is One Night in Miami. And uh, this is Regina, 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 Regina. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so this is Regina King's indie film that is based on a play of the same name. And it recounts a night in Miami in the 1960s uh, between Muhammad Ali, who was known as Cassius Clay then, uh, Jim Brown, a star football running back, Malcolm X, yeah, civil rights activist, and... uh, Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke, the singer. Thank you, Rob. (laughs) I just watched this yesterday, too, so it's also fresh in my mind. (laughs) Oh, okay. It's a relatively, I wouldn't say unexciting film, but it revolves around these four men arguing about black people and their role in white America in a time where racism was rampant. And they sort of uh, have these different ideas of how they should help their fellow uh, friends and people in the black community. And... I just like the performances, the interplay, uh, some of the ideas these characters brought with. There's no real conflict or villain in this uh, film. Like in a lot of these films, the villain is sort of like the institution that we all are familiar with. So it, it, it doesn't need much of an introduction. But I thought the acting was good. The production value was good. The dialogue was good. And I thought it was just a really fine film. This is another film where I think in another maybe in a another year would kind of get pushed outside the conversation because it's not, I would say, an exciting film. No. It's not particularly innovative in any way, but I thought it did a much better job of adapting the play onto the screen yes. than Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I was just about to say, yeah, when you think about movies that are adapted from plays, it's very easy to fall into a model of basically making the, the audience of the movie feel like they're in a theater um, but this movie does not do that. It takes us on a trip with these characters and, you know, uses the camera in more interesting ways. So that brings us to number five slot. Uh, so we're actually we're churning through this a lot faster than I thought. So that's good. My number five pick is something from way back in the before times, before the plague. And that is Invisible Man from Lee Winnell. <laughs> this is a film I don't know if I could ever bring myself to watch, but this film has made a lot of top 10 lists and I, I everyone tells me to watch it. But uh. yeah, well, now, I mean, I did convince you to watch Lee, Lee Winnell's previous movie Upgrade. So if you can sit through the violence in that, um, you know, this isn't this more gory? No, but the with, when it does use violence, it uses uses it in almost like a more surgical way. So it uh, arguably you feel it in a more kind of visceral kind of sense, even though it's not particularly graphic because the, the the emotion behind the, the violence is a little bit more poignant than it was in Upgrade, which is a very even more of a genre. thing. OK. Um, but Invisible Man, this is the the remake of the Universal Monsters classic character um, updated for 2020 with more of a high tech kind of approach right. to the Invisible Man and also leaning a little bit more heavily into the Invisible Man as an out and out villain. In the original interpretation, the Invisible Man was definitely not a good guy, but he was more of an anti-hero. In this, he's de- uh, definitely a villain. And as a kind of Silicon Valley tech bro who invents a an invisible suit for him to wear, he then uses it to wage a 
campaign of psychological warfare against his ex-girlfriend played by Elizabeth Moss and what the movie has to say about relationships between men and women, um, whether or not we believe women when they make a an accusation against a former partner. Uh, all of that is worked in here, but not in a kind of like hit you over the head way. And it builds up to an incredible uh, climax combined with a, a concluding scene that opens up all sorts of possibilities for a reinvigoration of the Universal Monsters catalog, uh, which we already know Lee Winnell is kind of working towards with maybe a Ryan Gosling Wolfman idea. So really curious to see where they take it, whether or not Elizabeth Moss uh, comes back for some sort of Marvel style tie in. We'll have to see. The movie is, is uh, uses silence and ca- and static camera shots where seemingly nothing is happening so effectively and uh, does not kind of rely on the old school horror movie tropes. Uh, so, yeah, a uh, big recommendation for me. But what's your number five? At number five, it's so funny how like at seven, I had trialed Chicago seven and at number five, I have the fly bloods. Oh, yeah. Okay. That is just like kind of coincidence, I guess. But uh, as you can see, like the five bloods, one night in Miami and trial of Chicago seven all deal with basically people uh, who are marginalized or painted with a broad brush by society. So the five bloods is a film by uh, Spike Lee, who I do consider myself a fan of. And it's about these black Vietnam war veterans who go back to Vietnam to basically dig up something they had buried there. And what this kind of does is it puts the Vietnam war from the point of view of a black person, a black narrator. And I think that's very rare in the Vietnam films that I've seen. Um, I love Delroy Lindo's performance. I thought Chadwick Boseman was fantastic in this. And there are certain hiccups and missteps in the film Um, especially in regards to the tonal shift sometimes, but I kind of am used to that with Spike Lee. Things just kind of pop out of nowhere. I I remember one scene that involves a landmine that just came off funny to me and awkward rather than, you know, serious as it's supposed to be. Yeah, for me too. (laughs) But I loved everything else about it. I thought the commentary was great. The acting was great. And Chadwick Boseman plays a really interesting role in that he's supposed to be sort of both a real character and both a figment of the main character's imagination. I, I thought it was interesting that in the flashback episodes and in, you know, sort of the present, I guess, they never bothered to age or de-age Chadwick Boseman. And I thought that was a really creative idea. I don't know if it was because of the budget, but it turned out really well. It feels like a, a real culmination for Spike um, in many ways. Yeah, a little bit, um, yeah. Yeah. And and he definitely he was pushing himself in certain ways technically because he was recreating one of the more difficult types of movie, a war film, which often requires huge budgets. And he was doing so on a relatively restricted one. He had to make some very specific decisions and what to depict and how to depict it. Number four, we kind of went over already, right? Uh, yeah. So for me, it's uh, First Cow. So uh, I I very much agree with what, what you were saying when you brought it up before. And uh, uh, just to add that I felt a, an extra little connection when I was watching it because I'd actually visited Oregon a couple of years ago. Um, obviously, you know, Oregon has changed quite a bit from the uh, the 19th century, but uh, it's it's nice to see a, a part of the United States that isn't always depicted in uh, in movies uh, get its due. Mm-hmm. That's right. 
So do you want to skip straight to number three then? So what's your number four then? Uh, just just for oh soul yeah okay sorry number four or <laughs> okay. soul yeah. yeah so uh, number three then for me is uh, Sound of Metal. Oh, I have this exact same movie at number three. Okay, okay. So we'll we'll uh, kind of squish this um, uh, this ranking together then. But yeah, uh, Sound of Metal. We both watched it fairly recently because it uh, it hit Amazon Prime after kind of sitting on a shelf for the better part of yeah. a year actually. Um, debuting at TIFF um, the season before. But the, uh, yeah, the Sound of Metal uh, does so many interesting things with certainly the the sonic landscape um, because it tells the story of a heavy metal drummer who is progressively losing his hearing. And Mm -hmm. for me, I was just so struck with how they depicted like the stages of grief, basically. He hasn't lost anyone directly, but he's kind of grieving for the life that he is losing. And that kind of like, you know, going from denial to rage to uh, bargaining to acceptance uh, very slowly and painfully uh, was very poignant for me. Right. And so while I was doing this ranking, there's usually like if you think back in movie about the movies you've seen, there's always a couple scenes or maybe an actor or two who like really jump out at you. And I could not get away from the camp counselor. Paul Rossi. Yeah. His scene where Riz Ahmed comes in and basically bargains for money to get this surgery to fix his hearing and the look on Paul's face and the message he delivers. I think that was the scene that get, that impressed me the most this year. I can't get it out of my mind. Yeah, I think Sound of Metal suffers because it's not it's a very slow burn film. And it didn't get a wide release. Um, the cast isn't particularly well known, although I hopefully that changes. Uh, Matthew Almeric didn't ruin this movie, so thank God. <laughs> but I couldn't find anything really wrong with this movie. I thought it was an incredible character development and, and journey about a person who who has to come to terms with who he is now and could never revert back to where he... Yeah, it's kind of like the ultimate character arc in the sense that, um, you know, you... Uh, you really cannot go back and uh, even even the efforts that you take to restore yourself to the way you were further change you. So, yeah. It- yes, his decisions drive most of the film, but his decisions made or stem from something from the fact that he had no control over. I hope this gets a lot of buzz during awards because I really think it deserves it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think ultimately it'll probably pick up a number of nominations, but I I worry that it's going to get beat out by some of the buzzier movies on the uh, yeah. in contention, which is is too bad. I, I know that the movie has picked up a few awards in like the the film critics circles, uh, you know, in Los Angeles and New York. But um, yeah, it, it could it might be a little bit too too much of a small fry to hold up against some of the big the bigger uh, uh, fish in the pond. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. but yeah. Um, so moving on to number two ranking, I've got Nomadland from Chloe Zhao. And uh, this was one that I saw at TIFF this year, Digital Screener. Just talking, in fact, about Small Fry versus the bigger fish in the pond. I have a feeling like Nomadland is going to be one of those bigger fish where it's probably going to pick up nominations for Francis McDormand in the main ca- character role. Um Best Picture, Best Director, all of the glitzy awards at this year's ceremony, even though it's being the ceremony's not happening till April. So this this is a movie about a character named Fern, who is one of the last people to leave this tiny place called Empire, Nevada, which had been a company town uh, built up around a gypsum factory that closes. And 
because of the fact that Fern was living in a company town and didn't have a whole lot of actual possessions belonging to her, and the fact that the town is literally no longer on the map, uh, she's left to travel the United States in a van and become a modern day nomad. And the movie just charts several years of her kind of crisscrossing the continental U.S. and meeting up with all of these other nomads who uh, live in similar vans and trade survival stories. And a lot of it is shot during golden hour. And a few people have kind of poked fun at the fact that, you know, uh, does anything interesting happen to Fern when it's not this lovely golden light everywhere? <laughs> but it is it is a, like uh, based on a, a very well regarded long form article that came out a couple of years ago, which was turned into a book um, starring a lot of real life nomads who are playing fictionalized versions of themselves. I think I mentioned this um, in my review on Letterboxd, but it's almost like Frances McDormand is this kind of embedded reporter of sorts, where granted she's playing a character and she's delivering scripted lines, but the information that she draws out of these real life nomads could almost be construed as a form of journalism, which is kind of cool. So again, this is another film that I feel like is going to push into the top 10. Um, At number two for me, um, is Small Axe Mangrove. So this is a anthology film series. Uh, I haven't made it through all of them yet, but Mangrove has sort of made the most lasting impression on me. Uh, directed by uh, one of my favorite directors, uh, Steve McQueen. It talks about a restaurant in London that was subject to a bunch of racism, uh, abuse, and all sorts of stuff. Um, so this is very much in a similar vein to The Trial of Chicago 7 in that it's kind of a, a legal drama disguised as a documentary almost, it seems like, sometimes. Um, have you seen this yet? I did, and I would... It, it, it just got pushed out of my top 10 by Promising Young Woman, um, but and that's only because I saw Promising Young Woman like yesterday, basically. Um, but the so this is a recency bias, a little bit, a little bit. But but uh, so if if then if we're saying that like documentaries are not as eligible, then maybe I would knock my documentary Dick Johnson is Dead off of the list and maybe put Mangrove in. I don't know; it's all subjective. But anyway, <laughs> yes, enough. I I totally agree with you. It is a very very strong film, like uh, a high high recommendation for me too. The directing, as always, is great. I'm a little like surprised Steve McQueen is able to create something like this. Granted, they're like his thing, his fingerprints all over it. Like, so there's um, tracking shots. There's a regular chitter chatter, you know, slice of life. People just doing really mundane things, really well framed. Like everything he does is well framed. But then there's a point, I think, in the middle of the movie, maybe a little past that, where like it starts to jump around because this is a long trial and he has to get through everything. I think 127 minutes, it's still pretty lengthy but in the interest of time there there are certain parts where it seems a little too condensed but i love the dialogue i love the accents i love the historical relevancy jack loden uh who plays one of the lawyers in this film is quickly becoming like one of my favorite actors like low-key is he the young guy in it yes he's the younger lawyer okay so he was also the the pilot in dunkirk oh okay i didn't that fly that fly that's like trapped in the water oh yeah i didn't make that connection at all yeah, yeah. And he was in Capone, too. He was one of the younger FBI agents. So he's one of those guys who's like in a who has like these bit roles in a bunch of movies. But I feel like in every movie he really does very well. That's at number two for me, Mangrove. All right. So uh, let's let's play a little guessing game. What do you think my number one movie of 2020 is? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I you're, you're not going to be happy with me. 
I, I honestly thought Mank would be in your top five. Okay, okay. So I was a little but, surprised it was so low. Like, can I narrow it down? Can I ask questions, narrow it down? Okay, sure. You get some yes, no questions. Is it considered a blockbuster movie? Yes. Is it Tenet? Yes. Oh my God. I told you, you're not going to like it, but... Tenet was at number 11 for me, but yes. Okay, why is this in your top... Or why is this your number one film of the year? Why? I, you know, it's... It's not even got anything to do with Christopher Nolan, although you could write me off as being a Nolan fanboy. And I would accept that. I would accept that label. I'm sorry. You just like the technical I, aspect forward, backward yeah, that's, shit. Honestly, that, that's what it is. It's it's uh, these kinds of like epic in scope, very tech jargony loaded type of concepts, heady sci-fi stuff. How long did it take for you to put Tenet at number one. Not very long. I I mean, I was... Wow, so it like, it was straight to the yeah. top. Yeah, now granted, I mean, like, we're still talking about a movie that is not like a five out of five for me by any means. I, I acknowledge a lot of the... Yeah, it's been that kind of year, I, I acknowledge right? a lot of the flaws in it, and to my knowledge, I don't think I have a single five out of five movie... Me neither. ...so far from 2020 releases. So, uh, yeah, the, and I have my own kind of head-scratching moments with this movie, and I've, I've only seen it <laughs> once so far, so I don't even have the benefit of the the you know the extra viewings that are probably necessary to really kind of grasp it or like of understanding every single element and physics theory that the movie presents yes, but like, but for me i think it's it's just like movies like this with with act with nolan's kind of um very precise filmmaking very retro styling um and just like the the overall production design and the the, the kind of look and feel of the movie um it's my jam. It's it's my crack. I can't I can't deny it. Yeah, you're right. I'm kind of annoyed at you. <laughs> so there you have it. I mean, I, it is what it is. I'm not going to be like Robbie suck. Kind of do, but <laughs> <laughs> even even as more movies come into the top ten, I I could consider Tenant dropping down a little bit depending on what I see in the next couple of months. So it, it's not like it's got it's got it's if firmly there a number one. Uh, we'll have to we'll have to revisit that, but yeah, for now it is it is definitely number one, and uh, and it's got more to do with just that with the overall setting and premise than it has to do with the actual execution. Right, right, yeah. I I mean, in terms of like technical ability, I think Christopher Nolan is second to none. I just find too many faults with the film, like in regards to plot, characters, pacing, sound design. <laughs> um, I just don't think uh, it was a particularly strong film, actually. Come to think of it, Tenet was one of the more lukewarm films I had, I, I saw this year. It just didn't get me going like some of his other films. But anyway, why don't you guess what my number one is? I don't think you'll get this one, but... Oh, okay. Uh, okay, let's ask some yes, no questions. Is it an American movie? No. Okay, is it from Taiwan? No. Is it from the UK? Uh, nope, but you're getting closer. I like this game. Keep going. Um, <laughs> is it a like a straightforward drama? Yes. I honestly, I don't know. I, I'm drawing a complete bang. What do you got? All right. Another round with Thomas Minterberg. Oh, okay. Wow. And Mads Interesting. Okay. So like coming up with this list required a lot of thought. Yeah. Coming up with the number one required even more thought. And I kept going back to another round. I just... Personally, I couldn't really find any faults with the film. It's a film about four middle-aged men facing basically a midlife crisis. Uh, they're both, they're all school teachers at this small school in Denmark. The film is Danish, if I haven't mentioned it yet. 
And to spice up their life a little bit, they decide to go on this experiment. The experiment is to drink on the job, basically. And so you get your usual hijinks, you get your drama, you get your comedy. Um, right. A bit of horror because you're kind of appalled at the things that they do. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed this film. I think it had a nice splash of everything. I thought Mads Mikkelsen was great. And I really thought, you know, there's no movie that's flawless. But to me, this is probably the most flawless film in terms of execution, acting, um, the whole product put together. I highly recommend it. I, I think it'll crack your top 10 after seeing your list. Like I could see it uh, maybe shouldering out Mank or Soul, maybe. Right. Mank I had at 13. I just didn't think it was particularly interesting or strong and partly because of the the content itself but again like you know as a person's top 20 is you know uh almost as valid as their as their well, top I mean, 10 so it, if you go on like uh roger ebert's website they have a whole bunch of reviewers too right and the new yorker as well everyone's top 10 list is crazy different yeah so and i'm glad that we had a we had a decent amount of variance in in our top 10 this year too or at least what you can call our top 10 given that there's still like 10 movies that we all have to see before where we feel like we've actually seen everything. Right. So there's a couple films that I haven't seen. I thought maybe could crack my top 10. You've already mentioned a couple. Uh, Minari is one. The Nest is one. The Assistant is one. And then Never Rarely, Sometimes Always is another one. Kajillionaire, Pieces of a Woman, Miss Juneteenth. So there's still quite a few films to go. So this is our, you know... Top 10 so far. Yeah. And uh, so I'll roll through mine uh, from uh, number 10 to number one, and then I'll hand it over to you to do the same. And then we'll quickly squeeze in a little bit of uh, a little segment on our uh, worst movies of the year. There aren't a lot. So uh, we'll just kind of fit that in in the tail end. Um, So for me, uh, top 10 from uh, number 10 to number one at 10, Dick Johnson is dead. Nine is Soul. Number eight is Mank. Number seven is Kajillionaire. Number six is Promising Young Woman. Number five is Invisible Man. Number four is First Cow. Number three, Sound of Metal. Number two, Nomadland. And number one is Tenet. I just, out of curiosity, did you have the five bloods ranked? I would say it would be on my top 20, maybe, like on the lower end of the top 20. I didn't I didn't like it as much as you did. I There were uh, the tonal stuff for me kind of knocked it further back. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. And Tesla? Uh, Tesla? Tesla was borderline already for me. I, uh, But like, you know me, I like films that are kind of out there. Yeah, I would say Tesla is kind of jostling for a position with the five bloods. And, you know, they're both at like a three and a half out of five for me on Letterboxd. So that's sort of where, where they are. So my list going from 10 to one. At number 10, I have Tesla. Number nine, First Cow. Number eight, A Life Turned Upside Down, My Dad's an Alcoholic. Number seven, Trial of the Chicago Seven. Number six, One Night in Miami. Number five, The Five Bloods. Wow, there's a lot of numbers. Uh, number four is Soul. Number three, Sound of Metal. Number two, Small Axe Mangrove. And number one, Another Round. Mm, all right. Very different list, but I think by the time awards kind of rolls around and we've seen like all of the films, then we'll have, I think, a list that's closer uh, matching wise yeah uh, possibly and uh, and like i said i can see tenant kind of falling down a couple of I, couple I can, spots yeah and... i can tell you right now tenant is not making my top <laughs> okay <10. laughs> 
is definitely not. Yeah, and so so I'm willing to lose whatever cred, like film buff cred uh, that that cost me. So there's this one film that's making a lot of critics lists, and I fe- I always feel like sometimes these films make critics lists because it makes them feel smart and superior. Okay. And because the film they like tends to be inaccessible or it talks about themes that they feel like they only know. So I'm talking about I'm thinking of ending things by uh, uh, yes. Charlie Coffin. I was wondering, where did you have this? I started this at number 10 and it kept going down and down and yeah. down and down. And right now, I don't even know if it's top 20 for me. I would say, yeah, if it's anything, it might be 19 or 20. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm thinking of ending things as kind of in the same territory for me as Mank. Okay. Where... I very I very much respect the filmmaking that goes into it and I 100% me too. For people who really connect with it, who um who are like really enjoying themselves while they watch it, more power to them. Um but for me, I was just kind of baffled the whole time and unlike with Tenet, I didn't feel like I would necessarily get a whole lot more out of it the more I watched it. <laughs> yeah, it's no, that's fair. It's so unconventional. It's so It's so bizarre. Uh it I mean deeply deeply layered with meaning um, i don't even know what it means though it takes so much is so much effort to decode that i i don't see myself revisiting it in the way that i revisit other really layered movies yeah like 10 years from now someone smarter is gonna write like a, a 2000 pa- a word essay about this film and i still won't be able to get yeah. it yeah um (laughs) but uh all right i like this next segment the most awful or disappointing films of the year i have like three or four that i've kind of wanted to touch on Uh, how many did you end up with i have three mind you listeners we have not revealed our lists to each other at all so uh what's one of the films that you thought was horrific okay i have one here that i i have a feeling you may also have on yours and that's capone Oh, okay. No, I don't have this. I actually don't think it's a terrible movie. Okay. Well, I mean, for me, I, I was just, I went into it hoping for the director, Josh Trank to sort of revive his career in a meaningful way. (laughs) It just, it let me down. It was, it was just a a bit of a slog, um, some very wild choices. You can't, you can't accuse him of not swinging for the fences and certain sequences. I think that's why I didn't have this among my most disappointing because I realized he took some huge swings. My gripe with this film was more with Tom Hardy's performance. This was definitely not among my disappointing. I didn't go I didn't go in with like high expectations like you did. I kind of went in with none. Oh no, I don't I don't think I went in with high expectations, but I went in with I went in with curiosity and I I think that curiosity was kind of um defused or killed. killed? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. I I kind of disagree with you on that one. But uh, what else you got? Okay. So this one probably this one has to be on your list. Um, Wonder Woman 1984. Yes. Okay. I was waiting for you to say this. I thought you were going to make this the first one because this is the most obvious. Well, it is. It's definitely occupied a lot of uh, like discourse online the past uh, couple of weeks since it came out. And uh, but I'm also glad that unanimously people think it's bad. And we we dedicated like like a 35 minute segment in the last episode to this. Which wasn't even enough. Yeah, it wasn't even enough. You could do hours on this. And it feels it feels weird to say something like that about a movie that is so kind of cookie cutter and, you know, big studio blockbustery. Mm-hmm. Um, we normally like, you know, the really interesting movies that are bad, but take 
but command a lot of discourse are the really honestly like legendarily bad things like the room or um, <laughs> the Neil Breen movies or, you know, the things that are like actually ineptly made. But uh, Wonder Woman 80, 1984 was made by a professional team of filmmakers. So the fact that it's so unsatisfying is, is just a total puzzle. Right. I agree with you. I, I don't even want to talk about it because I, I'm just going to go on ranting for like a few hours about this film. So let's just move on to the next one. Okay, so I only have one more on my list for, for like most disliked of the year. And this is definitely like, if I were to pick one that was definitely my most hated, it would be this. And that would be Robert Downey Jr.'s remake of Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> I, I thought this would make your worst of list because I remember you like... It's not like you to like really hate on something, but you went on a rant about this film with oh, me. Oh god. This is this is a absolute train wreck of a movie and <laughs> worse than Wonder Woman 1984 by a significant margin. Uh still not as bad as something like The Room or a Neil Breen film um because Again, allegedly, it was made by professional Hollywood people <laughs> with lots of money, with lots of money. But but from all accounts, not only was the set ineptly run by the director, uh, who's normally a screenwriter um, and money was just being set on fire for unused effects shots. And there was just unending reshoots. And the central performance by Robert Downey Jr. is utterly confusing there are so many weird attempts at like gross out humor involving CGI animals. It's just a absolute nightmare. <laughs> I, I love it when you hate on films. There's literally a scene where Robert Downey Jr. has his arm up the ass of a dragon and he's rummaging around for some sort of object that's important to the plot. And when he's able to release this object, the dragon farts in this long extended sequence and then the camera cuts to a CGI bear voiced by John Cena who gives the camera a thumbs up and says, nice. <laughs> it was so psychologically scarring, unsettling, <laughs> scarring. I just, I couldn't believe that that Downey had anything to do Can with it. Can you believe I, that this movie was uh, kind of targeted towards kids too? Yeah, I, I mean, I get that he you know, he wanted to make a clean break from Marvel, but this is a weird ass way to do it. <laughs> this is like kind of like when Disney stars do some R rated movie. It's just like it swings the other way way too yeah, hard. Just tonal whiplash. And it. <laughs> <laughs> OK. All right. So did you have any others besides Wonder Woman 1984? I did. I have three of them. Oh, and OK. I, I thought one of these would be on your list, but uh, we'll get there. So. Wonder Woman 1984 to me was the most disappointing considering how much hype it got into it. Second most disappointing, maybe not quite, but because I was kind of like cautiously optimistic. It was Midnight Sky, the George Clooney movie. Oh, yeah. I thought this movie just failed on so many fronts. It's totally uninteresting. It is totally derivative. It has zero creativity in it. And I take major points off that. Um, and it... it like it just never made any sense. I don't know why it's called the Midnight Sky. I don't know how it closely follows the book because if it does, then the book is probably terrible. <laughs> and I don't think this book is terrible. Anyway, I wouldn't even call this most disappointing, but this was one of the most boring films I watched this year. And it's Rebecca. Oh yeah, the one with Army Hammer. Yeah, and the Hitchcock Lily James, uh, remake. The Hitchcock remake. Exactly. Can we so, can we do a joke about cannibalism or is it too soon? Go for it. You know there were there were always like rumors that. 
Army Hammer was a little bit weird because he was so open about his like sex life and private life. Right. And it kind of gives a new meaning to that peach scene in uh, Call Me By Your Name, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, it, it, it rings a little different now when you go back and watch it. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna have to kind of go underground for a while before... Oh, he's gonna get cancelled, man. For yeah, sure. I'm, I mean, whatever. His cancelling is, is not gonna be like a Kevin Spacey cancelling, but... I don't know, but yeah, Rebecca was just truly boring. I, I dislike Lily James and her selection of roles. I don't dislike her personally i just dislike everything she's done since baby driver <laughs> well it's confusing too because the the director on that one ben wheatley he has been making such unique um genre movies up until right, now right um things like like high rise and free fire movies that i've really enjoyed that are really visually distinctive and um and really kind of uh, latch onto your brain for a few days after you watch them and by everything I've heard about this Rebecca remake is that it just pales in comparison to the Hitchcock original so oh my god it's not sexy it's not thrilling it's not horror it's not scary it's not dramatic it's just boring I, I can't I I rarely get up like midway through a movie and do other things and I did this with this movie oh yeah that's a kiss of death yeah Okay, and do you want to know my the worst movie this year that I saw? Or not this year, but 2020? This was a really early film, uh, early in the year. And the star of this movie, I've always had issues with because I never felt she was that strong. And she's always made some weird career choices. And she's always put in more poor performances than good performances, in my opinion. This is called The Last Thing He Wanted, starring Anne Hathaway. Uh, yes. So this was released in like the dead of winter. So like January, I think, on Netflix. Yes. And it's based on her books. And it's about this daughter uh, who I believe is a journalist who gets caught up in her dad's affairs. And her dad's some sort of gun runner, I think. Yeah. D during like, I can't remember what it was, but it was some sort of conflict in Guatemala. I yeah, yeah, it was kind of uh, Iran-Contra kind of affiliated sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think that's... Anyway, the movie never made it clear because the movie makes zero sense. It has poor pacing. I thought the performances weren't very good. The plot makes no sense. Ben Affleck is in there for God knows why. <laughs> it Like, when the, when the ending came and that, I think the ending is like she jumps into the ocean, right? Off a cliff or something? Or she gets uh, pushed? No, she gets shot, I think. Okay. She, that was the most hilarious scene of the entire film. Yeah. I was so happy it ended. I was like, God. And it, it was like a two plus hour film. And it was just devoid of any cohesion, logic, anything that made any sense at all. So I was a little surprised this wasn't on your list. But maybe we had just forgotten about it because it, it feels, feels so long ago. When I was... Going back over the, all the lowlights, I was using the Letterbox star system, and I was I was looking mostly at things that were like two stars or lower. And I think I ended up giving the last thing he wanted like maybe two and a half. So I maybe excluded it on on that ground. Oh, that was generous. Now thinking back on it, I think I should have knocked it back down to two stars. And maybe maybe even mentioned it as part of this this segment. 
so yeah, there you have it. That is our best and worst of 2020. I hope you enjoyed following along. Reach out to us on Twitter if you either agreed or violently violently disagreed with our picks. Uh, like we said, there's a lot of qualifiers in there. It's very much a not set in stone list for either of us at this point. For sure. But were there any titles that you've seen or that you're uh, looking forward to that you think we should consider that we might miss out on? So yeah, hit us up on Twitter. I'm at uh, J Robert Snow. Jason is at Jason Chen 16. And if you are liking these episodes, Give us a little rating on the podcast platform of your choice. You know, it really bumps us up in the rankings, helps more people find the show. So that's always super helpful to us. But until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you next time.